Last week in the opening seven verses of chapter two, we saw that God longs for all people to be saved. Four times in those verses, Paul uses the word all because he doesn't want us to miss the scope of God's salvation. We can pray for all people and preach to all people since Jesus died for all people and God wants all people to be saved. It seems to me that the false teaching in Ephesus must have had some some kind of an inward or an exclusive focus to it. There's something of a, a higher godliness or a super spirituality in it, about it. So in the opening verses of chapter 2, Paul's urging Timothy to challenge that. He, he reminds him that God's heart for the lost is inclusive and not exclusive. The gospel is for the whole world. Last week, as he was introducing chapter 2, Neil noted the kind of issues that we'd be dealing with here in in the passage this evening, and he warned us of the dangers of looking at texts like this through the eyes of our culture. And I want us to avoid doing that this evening. Uh, And the way that uh, I'm going to go about that is to take us very deep into the text and into Paul's culture. It's going to take me a wee while to do a decent job of that, so I hope you'll be able to bear with me. As we move into the second half of chapter 2, I want us to keep Paul's concerns the key concerns. With this passage more than most, we must do what I've been trying to teach you every time we teach from a Pauline epistle. We must recognize that Paul's not writing to us. He's not writing to Hamilton Road in 2023. He's writing to Timothy and the church in Ephesus in the 60s of the first century AD. If we read that way, we'll be much clearer about what Paul is saying to Timothy and to the Ephesians, and as a result, what God is saying to us here this evening through his word. Notice then again what Paul said in verse 2 of our chapter. Paul asks the believers to pray for their leaders so that Christians in Ephesus will be allowed to live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. That, that verse or that phrase, it doesn't feel like a very big deal, but it's huge in the context of this letter. Do you remember what this letter is about? Do you remember what Paul's driving concern is? I I raised this for us when I introduced the letter a few weeks ago. Flick with me to the end of chapter 3. As we come to the end of chapter 3, we come to the end of a a section of of commands for the church in Ephesus. It really stretches for the two chapters, 2 and 3. And as he, he sums up, Paul gives Timothy this, he's given this, teaching about how the church in Ephesus should live. Look at verse 14. Paul tells us clear as day why he's writing this letter. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing to you with these instructions. Why? So that you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. 
so we've talked about this. I'm going to keep talking about this as long as I'm teaching this letter. The church in Ephesus is the pillar and foundation of the truth. It holds up the gospel. It, the, the church exists there to make the gospel visible to the people of that city, the people of Ephesus who don't yet know King Jesus. Paul's goal in this letter, as it always is in his writing, is missional. Paul knows that the effectiveness of the Ephesian mission depends to a significant degree on how the Ephesian Christians live before their neighbors. And that's why he's interested in how they conduct themselves. And that's why he goes to such great lengths to talk about their conduct here in chapters 2 and 3. And that's why he challenges false teaching that's allowing or even encouraging ungodly living. If we can bear this in mind and allow Paul's chief concern to be our chief concern, it's going to make interpreting these verses this evening considerably easier. This evening, as we come to the second half of chapter 2, if we can accept that Paul's teaching is his response to a real situation in Ephesus, it's going to help us to understand what's otherwise a very difficult text. Let me begin by offering an outline of the passage. Paul's offering three instructions that I can see. He talks about how men should pray, how women should dress, and how women should act. So, in this paragraph, he's continuing. There's no big shift here from what we did last week. Verses 1 to 8, or verses 1 to 7, were about public worship, the prayers that he began to mention in verse 1. In verse 1, he dealt with the question, I think, of who can we properly pray for? And that's where that all stuff came in. We can pray for everybody because God wants everybody to be saved. In verse 8, he turns to a slightly different question. How should we pray? You'll notice in the passage that after dealing with men in one verse, he gives much longer treatment to the behavior of women That's interesting. Why would that be? Well, as I've been suggesting already this evening, the answer lies in the context of the Ephesian church. The false teachers were causing controversies and strife, so Paul's teaching to men that they pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and disputing, is a direct challenge to the false teachers and the divisions they're causing. Now, given that everything so far in chapter 2 is in direct response to the false teachers, we should probably assume in the first instance that the teaching regarding women might also be in response to false teaching and the circumstances of the church in Ephesus. Let me show you that this is indeed the case. There are two passages in the Timothy correspondence where Paul deals in some detail with the women in the Ephesian church. The passages are, if you're interested in studying this further, I'm going to take you to them, but make a note of it. 1 Timothy 5, 3 to 16, and then 2 Timothy 3, 5 to 9. Flick with me to the 2 Timothy passage, 2 Timothy 3. So bear in mind, it's a, it's a different letter, but it's Paul writing to the same Timothy who's in the same Ephesian church, so 
it's fine to read these two letters together. It seems that there are false teachers at work who are getting a hearing among, verse 5, gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Sorry, that was verses 6 to 7. Flick back then with me to 1 Timothy 5. And we see that among these women are some younger widows. Verse 6, we learn, 1 Timothy 5, verse 6, that they are living for pleasure. Verse 13, some have become idlers, gossips and busybodies, saying things they ought not to. And in the very next verse, Paul implies that these women are bringing the gospel into disrepute when he encourages them to live differently in order to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some of these women, Paul says in verse 15, have already turned away to Satan. The advice that he gives in chapter 5, that these women should marry, have children, and take care of their homes, may well help us to make sense of the very difficult verse at the end of chapter 2, verse 15. In light of what we've been saying about women living for pleasure, the instructions here about modest dress might start to make sense too. I just wanted to share some of that with you very, very quickly before we come to our passage this evening. It's to give you some encouragement that this material, which might seem very strange to us, can actually be very well understood in the context of the Ephesian church. Okay, now that we have a bit of an overview of the passage and some encouragement for the road ahead, let's, let's have a look at these further instructions which Paul wants Timothy to share with the church in Ephesus. He says, verse 8, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputation. Paul's already been talking about prayer, verses 1 to 7, and he's still on the subject here, verse 8. In effect, he's saying, while we're on the subject of prayer, be sure that when you gather to pray, it's for prayer, not not for anger, not for disputes. It's important that we get Paul's point here. His primary emphasis isn't saying that men should pray. He's already already talked about praying for, for everyone. He's assuming that. He's not saying that only men should pray. I'm sure Paul wants women to pray too. He's not saying that men should pray only with their hands in the air. He's assuming a form of prayer that would have been prevalent in in Jewish uh, and in early Christian uh, worshiping communities. What Paul is saying is that when men pray with their hands lifted up, they should be holy hands. That is that the person praying shouldn't be engaged in controversy and dispute. If that's what Paul's teaching Timothy there and then, what might God be saying to us through this passage here and now? How does a passage like this speak to us today? Well, it's telling us a lot about the attitude of our hearts, isn't it? Our hearts, when we come to prayer, mustn't be full of anger. They mustn't be fostering dispute. 
While the stuff about lifting up holy hands might seem culturally remote to us, I'm sure we can appreciate that anger and dispute can arise in any church at any time. When they do, that'll be hugely damaging for a church family. Whenever it escalates to the point where we're airing our dirty laundry in public, I'm thinking of examples recently. You maybe saw it, the Anaheim Vineyard Church in America. They're having real problems, and it's a, it's a huge legal action. It's a, a huge news story. These things never serve to, to build God's reputation before a watching world. Whenever we're angry and in dispute, we're not the pillar of the gospel that we're called to be. After speaking about how men should pray, Paul turns his attention to how women should dress. I'm living at home with three women these days, so I hope I don't give them too much advice on how they're dressing. It's hard to be absolutely certain why Paul's raising these concerns. That's often the case with Pauline letters. Why is he saying that? But we've already noticed this evening there's evidence elsewhere in these letters to Timothy that there are problems among the women in the church in Ephesus. In chapter 5, verse 11, Paul talks about a time when younger widows' sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ. We've already noticed in chapter, or, or in 2 Timothy, sorry, 3, verse 6, he describes some of the women of the Ephesian church as loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires. When Paul expresses his concerns about the women in the church, he chooses to focus his concern on how they're dressing. Now, now that might seem a little strange to us. I, I think we just have to accept that that, that might not be the first thing that... Uh, a minister chooses to talk to his congregation about. In the culture, this, this might have been quite a, a normal thing for Paul to be addressing. In both Greek and Jewish cultures of the time, we're told that when a married woman dressed up, she was understood to be acting in a, in a sexually provocative way. She was showing disrespect for her husband. For a, a wife to dress up inappropriately in public was was regarded as tantamount to marital unfaithfulness. So you have one of the ancient writers simply saying, a wife who likes adornment is not faithful. Okay, so when you hear that, you think, okay, I, I can see why Paul might choose to, to, to address this issue. He urges the Christian women in that culture to act in a way that'll bring glory to God. If they're to be pillars of the truth in Ephesus, then it won't be by dressing up. Paul's not against women in the Ephesian church considering their appearance and making themselves attractive. He, he recognizes that they're beautiful. He, he wants them to go for it, to do all they can to enhance their beauty. John Stott says there's no biblical warrant in these verses for women to neglect their appearance, conceal their beauty, or become dowdy and frumpish. The question is how women should show their beauty. 
Paul tells them not to go for braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. He said that they should dress modestly with decency and propriety, with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. If that's what Paul is teaching Timothy there and then, what might God be saying to us through this passage here and now? How does a passage like this speak to us today? Let me suggest that it's not saying that we should take a first century Near Eastern view of how women dress and what that communicates. Instead, it has a lot to tell us about where a woman's true beauty lies. A word for the women of Hamilton Road. Set your hearts on the kind of beauty that Paul's advocating here. If you find yourself giving a huge proportion of your time and your energy and your money to thinking about your appearance, ask yourself why. What, what's your motivation? Please don't come to church dressed up or, or made up with a, a view to catching the eye of the men of this congregation. Rather, live your whole life clothed in the deep beauty that comes from being transformed by Jesus Christ. Set your hearts on being a truly beautiful woman in the catching the Lord's eye rather than ours. A word to the man of Hamilton Road. We can help with this. We can learn to honor the kind of beauty that Paul's advocating here. If you haven't already done so, make a shift in your mind to move from being impressed by the external appearance of a woman to celebrating her deep inner beauty. Help the women of our church family to grow in Christlikeness. Call something better out of them than our, our tabloid culture is going to call them to. So far, so good. We've managed to make sense of Paul's difficult teaching on how men should pray and of how women should dress. Let's look now at, at these last verses in the passage, verses 11 to 15. They, they have to do with how women should behave. If verses 9 to 10 have to do with one problem among the women in Ephesus, in Ephesus, some sort of immodesty, then these remaining verses have to do with a, a different problem. A, a, it looks like a rebellious streak of some sort, an unwillingness to submit to authority. Paul says, verse 11, that a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Let's try and work it out. What does he mean? Notice, first of all, that women were part of the public worship and were hearing the teaching. We take that for granted, but nobody in that culture would have. 
That's not something you take for granted in, in the culture that Paul's writing in or in many traditional cultures today. The early Christian church honored and elevated women far above the culture. Notice also that it doesn't say that women are to learn in silence. The word translated as quietness here is the same word that's translated peaceful and quiet lives in verse 2 of the chapter. It doesn't have to do with volume, something that you can hear. It has to do with attitude. It's the same word that's sometimes been wrongly translated as silent. And maybe you grew up with this, this text ringing in your ears that women were to be silent in the churches. An interesting quirk. I'm a child of the previous NIV. The NIV 1984 is kind of my heart language Bible but it was wrong. It said that women had to be silent. It has been corrected by the time of our text, uh, by the time of the 2011 translation. There's no suggestion in the text that women aren't allowed to speak in the Ephesian church. Since this is the first thing that Paul says, verse 11, and the last thing that he says in verse 12, this seems to be the thrust of the point that he's making in those two verses. It seems most likely, in the light of what we noticed earlier about the problems that Paul's identified with some of the women in Ephesus, that he's against women pushing to be up front in public worship and talking foolishness, saying things that they ought not to, as he says in chapter 5, verse 13. Let me show you very quickly how these two verses work. Verse 12 picks up and elaborates three items from verse 11. In verse 11, Paul said that a woman should learn, and he develops it further in verse 12. He says, I do not commit, uh, permit a woman to teach. Teaching, remember, is precisely where the problem lies in the church in Ephesus. Now, we've got to slow down for a moment here and notice a few things. Other passages in Paul suggest that women shared in different forms of instruction in the congregations he established. Phoebe, we've just finished studying Romans uh, before the summertime. Phoebe, after all, delivered and read Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Priscilla, when Apollos hadn't got the gospel quite straight, it was Priscilla who came and corrected his thinking. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, we see that women were allowed to prophesy in the church in Corinth. The wider witness of Scripture hints at the equality of women with men in the worship of God. So in another book that we've studied recently, Joel spoke the words of the Lord, promising a time when I will pour out my Spirit on all people, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Paul considered that time to have arrived in the, the coming of Jesus Christ and in the proclamation of the gospel. And so he taught Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
So while it seems that women were speaking and giving some forms of instruction in some of Paul's communities, he's not encouraging that in Ephesus. Why? Why might that be? Well, the word translated here as teaching most likely has to do with teaching the Scriptures and as a consequence with preaching the gospel, the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't want women doing that work in Ephesus. In case you're confused, that's how I understand what he's saying. He doesn't want women teaching in Ephesus. That's what he's telling us. Why? It's because they've been so terribly deceived by the false teachers. The false teachers, Paul tells us, chapter 1, verse 7, are the ones who want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. It's no wonder Paul doesn't want women who've come under the influence of false teachers to have a role in the public ministry of the word in the church. If Paul wants Timothy to shut up the men who are the false teachers, he'll naturally want him to shut up the women who are propagating the same false teaching. So that's a a first elaboration to do with teaching. In the second of his elaborations, Paul takes the phrase, full submission, from verse 11 and says, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man. The word translated authority occurs only here in the whole New Testament. It means something like to domineer. And again, in the light of a context where many of the women had been led astray by false teaching, it's hardly surprising that Paul doesn't want their views to dominate the community. In a more general way, we must see that in a patriarchal society, which Paul is writing to, women throwing the head up, as we would say in Ulster, is not something that's going to be a winsome witness for the gospel. That will not be a missional way to live in Ephesus. A third elaboration that Paul makes is that phrase in quietness from verse 11, and he repeats it in verse 12. He's repeating twice what he's already said in verse 2, commanding a, a posture, a quiet demeanor. So the picture that's been painted here is very consistent. There's some kind of disruptive behavior. It, it seems to have included a boisterous support for false teaching, And Paul wants Timothy to stamp it out. His goal right throughout the letter is to deal with false teaching in the church of Ephesus, to restore people to godly living so that they can be a pillar for the gospel in the city. After making his basic point there in verses 11 and 12, Paul spends a couple of verses taking us to the story of Scripture to give support to what he's been saying. He refers to creation. He says that Adam was formed first, then Eve. He doesn't really elaborate on that. It's quite mysterious. What do you mean by that, Paul? What's your point out of that? He does elaborate on a second point out of the fall. 
he says that Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now, Paul's not saying that women are sinful and that men aren't. Elsewhere in his writings, Paul will talk about Adam as a representative of all sinful humankind. In Romans 5, he said, just as sin entered the world through one man, meaning Adam. So here in verse 14, Paul's talking about Eve as the representative woman. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Why has Paul chosen to take us back to creation and fall? It's because the fall is happening all over again in Ephesus. Just as Satan seduced first Eve and then through her Adam, so false teachers are seducing women and Paul does not want the women who have been deceived to lead others, men or women, astray. We're nearly done. In verse 15, Paul brings his instructions to women, uh, on, to, women to a close. He does so by picking up a number of strands from the previous verses. What he says here has troubled the church for generations. Maybe it's troubling you now and you're wondering, what's he going to say about women and childbearing? If we stick with the argument, if we stay where we are this evening, this is going to work out. Paul said that the woman was deceived, and he goes on to tell us how, how she can be saved. Look at the opening words. Slow down a second here. Don't, don't race ahead. Don't let your mind race ahead. Look at verse 15. But the woman will be saved through what? What do you expect Paul to say to finish that sentence? If you know Paul at all, what do you expect Paul to say about how, how women are going to be saved? I bet if, if we were reading this for the first time, I bet nobody in the building sticks up their hand and says, I know, it's, it, they're going to be saved through childbirth. Women are going to be saved, he says, through childbirth. What, what are you talking about, Paul? And so the commentators have come up with all sorts of answers. They have said, yeah, Somehow the, the very act of bearing children is going to somehow give women favor with God. Okay. Explain that further to me. Some of the other commentators will say women will be saved through the childbirth. That is the, the birth of Jesus when he's born to, to Mary. That's true. But it's nothing to do with what we're talking about here. Neither of these interpretations makes any sense at all of, of the passage. More likely what Paul has in mind here is that women will be saved from the kind of deceptions that's sweeping through the church in Ephesus. 
by living the peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness that he mentions in verse 2. And for Paul, in the culture in which he lives, the almost only way to think of that kind of a life, if you look with me again at chapter 5, verse 14, for the women in his culture, that means a life of marriage, childbearing, and managing your home. That may make sense. So, so I hope that makes sense. Paul is calling the women who've been drawn into false teaching, who've been drawn into weird theology and disputation, he's drawn them, he's inviting them to, to leave that behind and, and just, you know, we might say, settle down. Go, go and live the life that you're called to. Now, there's still, for me, although I interpret the text that way, there's still a residual problem for me. This may make sense of Paul's argument in 1 Timothy, but it hardly makes sense of the Christian gospel. Just before we write Paul off, saying that he's, he's thrown out all his good theology and all his gospel commitment out the window, look at how he finishes the very final words of the chapter. The salvation that women will find through childbearing assumes something much more fundamental, that they continue in faith love, and holiness with propriety. Paul's not talking about all women here. He's talking about women of faith. Christian women who have responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no salvation in being a good wife, a good mother, or a homemaker. That would be salvation by works. The salvation that Paul's talking about here is the only salvation that he ever talks about, salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He's calling these women to continue in that faith and to live lives of love and holiness with propriety. Let's try to wrap this up. In the previous two cases of, of men praying without anger and dispute, and of women dressing appropriately, I've taken a moment to answer the question, how does a passage like this speak to us today? If that's what Paul's teaching Timothy there and then, what might God be saying to us through this passage here and now? Now, in this last area of women's roles in the church, it's an area of considerable controversy. I accept that many of you may not agree with how I've interpreted these texts. Nonetheless, I'm happy to offer my views on the matter. Let me explain quickly how we, we need to deal with a passage like the one we've looked at this evening. There are two extremes that we need to avoid. One is a, a rigid literalism. If we were to approach this text in a very rigid way, we'd probably say that men should pray holding up their hands while they pray, that women should never braid their hair and should certainly never speak in a church gathering. As we apply other similar texts from Paul, we'd say that women should keep their head covered in church, that men should never have short hair, and that we should all give each other a kiss at some point before we leave this service. And it's that last one that terrifies you most. 
So if we're going to avoid the extreme of rigid literalism, we also need to avoid a second extreme of a radical libertarianism. With this approach, we look at a text like this this evening with our 21st century Western eyes, and we say, well, that's all cultural. Since I live in a different culture, nothing Paul says is binding on me. Perhaps you can see where that kind of approach might take us finally with Scripture. In his commentary on this passage, John Stott suggests a third approach, which he calls cultural transposition. With this approach, we have to work out which parts of what's being taught in Scripture really are God's essential revelation, which parts will never change, and which parts are a cultural expression, which will change. Then if we can work this out, we keep the former, the essential revelation, and we're free to transpose it from the original culture into our own. Think, for example, of Jesus' command to his disciples, wash one another's feet. Some Christian communities take that very literally, and they'll set aside maybe a, a service per year where they get their shoes and socks off and go around and watch each other, wash each other's feet. Others will dismiss the passage and say, oh, that's not very relevant to me. What we ought to do with a passage like that is to discern what's intrinsic in it. And that is that no job is too menial for a follower of Jesus Christ. And we transpose it from the culture of Jesus into our times. And we build a community of people, all of whom are willing to sweep the floors, wash the dishes, and clean the toilets as humble servants of a humble Savior. I don't know whether you've spotted it, but we have been practicing that kind of cultural transposition in the applications we've made so far this evening. We've said that Paul's not telling us to lift up our hands when we pray, but he is talking to us about the attitude of our hearts. We've said that he's not forbidding braided hair uh, and how a woman ought to but, but he is telling us about how a woman ought to express her beauty for God's glory. What if we made one last cultural transposition about the role of women in the church? Might we not say then that there's something permanent and irreversible about Paul's suggestion that those who are teaching and speaking out in a way that undermines the gospel, as the women are doing in Ephesus, should be silenced? Of course they should. They should be silenced in Ephesus every bit as much as they should be silenced in Bangor today. But we're not bound by the culture of the first century Ephesus. All women need not be silent at all times in all of our gatherings. If God brings us women who love the Lord know the gospel, and whose gifts can be used to build up a community of men and women together, I believe that we can and should find ways for those women to use their gifts in the church. The servant leadership that they give need not be seen to undermine any authority 
or responsibility given to men. I know that I've been much blessed by the ministry of women in my home, in colleges where I've studied, and in churches where I've served. We really are out of time, and so I'd better stop. If you're interested in learning more, why not have a go at book by book this month? We're reading the Paul's letters to Timothy and to Titus. Get a journal, read it, read it, read it over and over again, and see, um, see what God is saying to you through his word. We'll have a discussion at the end of the month uh, about those books of the Bible. If you want to talk further, let's have a coffee together in the Welcome Center, and we can check our thinking together. Whether you agree with how I've interpreted this text this evening or not, please don't be sidetracked. Let Paul's chief concern be your chief concern. Paul's chief concern is not gender roles in the church. His concern, he's told us in verse 2, is that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. Why is that his concern? It's because Paul knows that the church is God's household, the pillar and foundation of the truth. It's because he longs for all the people in Ephesus to be saved. Anyone who teaches in a way that undermines the gospel and that leads people away from godly living needs to be silenced male and female. My prayer is that the whole church family here in Hamilton Road, men and women together, will be so dead set on our desire to hold up the gospel of Jesus Christ for a watching banger that we'll be able to work together for God's glory in this. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that each one of us can point to godly men and women whom you've used to build us up in the faith. Lord, we pray that you would turn each one of us into just such men and women. We pray that each one of us would have such a passion for Jesus, such a heart for his glory that you would be able to use us in all sorts of ways to build each other up and to hold up the gospel of Jesus Christ before our friends and our neighbors and this, this city in which you have placed us. Lord, bind us together in unity for your glory, we pray.